Amen to it. Uh, again, Mark continues with these stories. A lot of you weren't here last week because it was Labor Day weekend. We talked about some stories in Mark. Uh, this, this letter has a lot of what they call controversy narratives, where there's a quick story or a vignette that talks about something that Jesus does or says that causes a lot of controversy amongst the people, specifically the Pharisees and the scribes. And so two weeks ago, if you were here, remember, Jesus told a man that his sins were forgiven. This obviously causes a lot of controversy because the Pharisees say, only God can do that. And Jesus kind of says, yep. And, and that's controversy. And then last week we talk about Jesus calling one of the most hated members of society, a Jewish tax collector named Levi, to be one of his followers. He would become the man that we know as Matthew. And he becomes one of the apostles and disciples, and he follows Jesus throughout his ministry. This is incredibly controversial. Why would you call somebody that everybody in society hates to be a follower of the Messiah, and yet Jesus does it because he sees something amazing in who Matthew can be? And then the first thing that Matthew does as a follower of Jesus, he invites all of his friends and associates, these sinners, these tax collectors, the dregs of society, to have a meal with Jesus, to which the Pharisees, again, they say, why are you being so controversial? Why would you have a meal with these type of people? And those lead, this leads to Jesus' famous words, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Amazingly, the Pharisees hear this and they think that they don't need a physician when in reality they might need the physician more than anybody. And Jesus says, I'm here for those who are broken. I'm, those, I'm here for those who are in need. And the Pharisees fall again into their self-righteousness. And we're going to see this self-righteous attitude continue in the next few stories that Mark gives us over and over again, we're going to see that the Pharisees, get this, they're not trusting in God or his mercy or his grace. They are trusting in their own actions, in their own righteousness. So let's read from Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22, a question about fasting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, to give a little bit of context, we're talking about fasting here. 
and the Pharisees or the people come and say, all of John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. All of the Pharisees are fasting. Why are your disciples, Jesus, not fasting? Well, in the Old Testament, there's only one day a year that people were required to fast. It was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And yet, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, have started to fast far more often. In fact, they fast twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And it probably started out as a really good thing. They wanted to take time to be with Jesus, or sorry, to be with God, and and to just fast. And, and to focus on him. But then it turns into, as so many other times, it turns into this thing where they just want to look really religious. And so they fast. And they kind of make it look like they're fasting. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who's like, I'm fasting. It's like, well, it sounds like the joy of the Lord is just in you right now. Like, that's, that's awesome. They start to do this, and it becomes a religious show. They want people to view them as pious, religious men, so they play it all up for attention. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus specifically warns people to not fast like they do. It says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Right? They're standing on the streets just being like, Oh, look at me. I'm so hungry, but I'm fasting for Jesus. Like, they they just want everyone to think that they look religious. And Jesus says, Don't be like those hypocrites. It's not that we shouldn't fast. It's an amazing spiritual discipline that we can use to put our focus completely on God and to deny our own fleshly desires for a time so that every time we get hungry or whatever it is you're fasting for, whatever time you have for a longing for that, that reminds you to pray for whatever it is that you are specifically taking time to pray for. It's a good spiritual discipline, but it is not something to just put out there to the world so that you just look like a spiritual person. So back to this story. Mark, the question he's asked is, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus gives this amazing answer. He says, we're right in the middle of a wedding feast. I'm the bridegroom. I've come to claim my bride. We are in the middle of the wedding feast. You don't go to a wedding and fast. How weird would that be? Right? How you're like amazing food, and you're just like, I'm fasting. No, like have fun at the party. And Jesus says, We're in the middle of this celebration of the groom coming to claim his bride, which is the church. And so you don't fast when that is happening. But notice verse 20, he does point that in the future a time will come when they will fast. He's pointing forward to when he will die. And he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. And so he's saying, time for fasting will come, but right now we're in the middle of a celebration. And it's not time to fast. And then in verses 21 and 22, he he gives these kind of weird stories that 
unless you are a, a, a vintner or a seamstress, you might be like, what does that mean? Right? He says, if you don't take a piece of unshrunk cloth and put it in an old garment, because if you do, when you wash it, that will tear worse. Right? I remember when I was a kid, my grandma used to always try to patch the holes in my jeans that I would get from playing football on the grass, which is ridiculous because I'm going to tear those jeans tomorrow. But she would have to figure out, you know, use the old cloth to patch it. And then I look ridiculous because I have patched up jeans in 1990. And you're supposed to have holes in your jeans in 1990. Everybody knows that. Right? She would try to do that. And he says, you don't put new wine in an old wineskin because the old wineskins grew brittle. And if you put new wine into them, and as that wine ferments, it will tear the wineskin and it will be worthless, and you will lose all of your wine. And his whole point here is he did not come to patch up an old system. He did not come to put new wine into an old wineskin. So often the people are trying to turn Jesus into somebody who's just coming to kind of polish up Judaism. But that's not why he came. He's new wine. He's new cloth. He's come to do something completely different, to take the people of God, the Jewish people, and to take the Gentiles from all over the world and to bring them together and to create something brand new. He's not just polishing the old. He's bringing a new covenant that will change everything. The gospel whole message that we've spent 21 weeks talking about so far is not just a message that can be layered on top of the old covenant. It is something new, a new work that Jesus brought into this world. And it does not fit, listen, it does not fit with the legalistic traditionalism of the people that came before who just want to look religious. It is bigger, greater, more far-reaching, more changing, more life-shifting than any of that could have possibly been. So Jesus lets them know, my followers are not fasting right now because they are in the middle of a wedding celebration that is changing the world. Let's read Mark's next little vignette story. Verse 23 through 28. Again, Mark changes quickly. He's talking about that, fasting, and now he switches to talking about Sabbath. Verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to them, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You want to get controversial? Say something like, the Son of Man, me, Jesus, 
I'm the Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are just walking along. And as they're going, some of them start to pluck heads of grain. They're eating them. And then it's almost like the Pharisees were like just hunched over in the grain fields and they like popped out. Like, I saw that. Like, it, it really seems like they're just weeding, lurking in the grain fields. I saw you do that. Right? And they say, why are you breaking the law? And it's not that they were stealing grain. They weren't stealing grain. There was Old Testament permission. If you were hungry, you could walk along the edges of the fields and you could pluck grain so that you could have food. So it's not that they're stealing. It's that they are working, according to the Pharisees. It's the Sabbath, and they're working. But again, these laws that they're talking about are not God's laws. They're laws that the men have made up. They say, you're breaking Sabbath law, not God's law, our law. And these laws that they're talking about are just traditions, traditions made by man. In fact, Deuteronomy allows for this. It said you could go out and pluck grain if you're hungry on the Sabbath, as long as you don't use a sickle. Right? If you use a sickle, then you're working. But if you just go out and pluck grain and eat some grain, it's fine. But they had all these rules that they had put into place. They were, they were so worried about sinning. I've said this before. They're so worried about sinning that they take the sin and then they create a thousand rules around the sin so that they might not accidentally sin. And then they make that sound as if that's the law of God, but it's not. And so they had these rules and they created even more. And specifically with this one, they had these rules about the grain field that you were not allowed to reap, thresh, winnow, or prepare a meal. Now, you guys that are farmers understand that far greater than I. But they had those rules. You cannot reap, right, pull it. You cannot winnow, prepare it. You can't thresh. You can't prepare a meal. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, the disciples just broke all four of those laws. Because in the eyes of the Pharaohs, when they go and they pluck the grain, they've reaped the grain. When they rub the grain together, they have now threshed the grain. When they allow the wind to blow the chaff away, they have winnowed the grain. And then when they eat it, they have prepared a meal. So the Pharisees have created so many laws that by simply eating a piece of grain, you have broken four of their laws. Their laws had become so ridiculous and so overbearing that it became harder to keep the law of the Sabbath than to just rest. They had destroyed the whole idea of Sabbath. You can see how legalistic and ridiculous these laws have become. I learned a new one this week that I had never heard of that I think you ladies will especially like. Women were not supposed to bathe on the Sabbath... Because if you accidentally got some water on the floor from your bath, then you might be tempted to clean up the water. And that would be breaking the law. So they would rather their ladies stink than clean up some water. 
Jesus responds to the Pharisees' accusations that they're breaking the laws. And I love the way that he starts this response. I don't hear people talking about this enough, but I love this because Jesus says, have you not read? Now he's talking to a bunch of people that pride themselves on being the most educated, intelligent men in the world when it comes to the law of God, to the Bible. And he says, haven't you read the Bible? It's like the worst thing that you could say to Pharisees. Like, how, how, how dare you? I know every word of the Torah. He says, haven't you even read the Bible? And then he references a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David is not yet the king of Israel, and he's actually running from the current king of Israel, Saul. He's running for his life because Saul wants to kill him. David comes to a town called Nob, and there's a priest there named Ahimelech, or I forget what it said in this other translation. Anyways, long name, hard to say. Aviator, thank you. And he asks the priest for food for his men. But Ahimelech says that the only bread that they have in their temple at the time is the show bread. It's bread that is specifically prepared only for the tabernacle and then to be eaten by the priests. And so David's like, I'm, I'm hungry. We're at war. We are running for our lives. And the priest finally gives him bread for their need. Now this bread is only supposed to be for priests. Neither David nor his men are priests. And yet the preservation, listen, the preservation of human life took precedent over following a ceremony of religiousness in that moment. And so Jesus points to this story. He says, have you not read? And he says another thing that would cause an uproar amongst them. Remember, he's already cleansed somebody from leprosy, which does not happen. He's already shown that he has authority over demonic spirits that listen when he orders them. He's already claimed the ability to forgive sins in sinners, which only God can do. And now, after schooling the Pharisees in the Scriptures, he says this, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When Jesus makes this claim, make no doubt about it, he is claiming to have the very power of God. Because what the Pharisees hear when he makes this claim, when he claims to have authority over the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. So he's saying, I have authority even over the law and the lawgiver which was Moses, which for them, Moses is the end-all, be-all. And he's saying, I have authority <coughs> excuse me, over all of these things. These words are so outrageous in every possible sense, unless they're true, unless it's actually the reality. They don't get all of this. We have the benefit of looking at this story from the other side. 
they don't get that they are arguing about Sabbath with the God who created Sabbath. They're arguing over about laws with the one who stood over creation and said, you know what? We need a Sabbath at the end of the week so that we're not always working. We need to rest. We need relief from something. And they're arguing with Jesus about that. Oh, what a beautiful woman to bring me water in my time of need. She says, tell them I'm your wife so it's not weird. I like making things weird. It's fun. <clears throat> I want to read you just one more short controversy vignette that I think wraps all of these stories together. Let's read just the first six verses of Mark chapter 3 today. Again, it takes place on the Sabbath. We don't know if it's the exact same day as the day in the fields or if it's a week or two or three later. But it's a Sabbath day, and it's soon after the wheat fields. And some scholars have wondered, and I think they might be onto something, they've wondered if this was a setup from the beginning. If those who were in power, those Pharisees, placed this person in the place that he was at in order to test Jesus. And I think it's probably true. Chapter 3, verse 1, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So Jesus goes into synagogue, which is much like their church, and he finds a man with a withered hand, which in the original language means dried hand. Like, like you can see, like just it's withered and it's dried. It doesn't have life in it. He can't use it for anything. And, and it tells us immediately that the Pharisees are just waiting to see if Jesus will heal him on the Sabbath so they can nail him for, again, working on the Sabbath. Jesus, of course, knows exactly what's happening. He knows what's in their hearts. And so he says, come here to the man with the withered hand. And you can just imagine in your mind's eye that the man comes and stands before Jesus, and Jesus' eyes turn to the Pharisees. And he says these words, Is it lawful to do good or harm, to save life? Or to kill. Now, a side note for you Bible students who love to nerd out. This story is also in the account of Matthew. And some people have claimed that Matthew and Mark 
have a difference in the story that means that one of them is not true. Because Matthew actually tells us that the Pharisees ask Jesus the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But I don't think it's a mistake at all. Because I think if we put those two stories together, we would see the whole story, and it makes it even more dramatic. If Jesus is standing there with the man in front of him, and the Pharisees say to him, is it lawful to do good, to save or to kill? And then Jesus looks right back at them and he says, is it? Is it lawful to save, to do good or to kill? They refuse to answer the question, waiting to see what Jesus would do. You have to imagine the tension in this room. Everyone is watching. Everyone is wondering what is going to happen. You've got these religious leaders and you've got this kind of new rabbi that everyone's saying amazing things about and, and there's this standoff going on. There's tension in it. Jesus looks around at them with anger because he's grieved at the hardness of their hearts, of how hard they are. And in Matthew's account, he actually says to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then Jesus turns to the man with the withered hand and he says, stretch out your hand. Which almost sounds like a cruel thing to say to somebody who has had a withered hand their whole life, doesn't it? Like he's never tried to stretch out his hand. And yet when the power of God comes through the words of Jesus, this man does so. He stretches out his hand and he is restored. He's restored to fullness. Jesus does this amazing, miraculous thing. Restoring a broken man to health. Changing his life forever. And what do the Pharisees immediately do? They go out and they hold counsel with the Herodians on how do we destroy this man. This man that we've just watched heal somebody. We want to kill him. You have to understand the context of this to understand like how big of a deal this is. Because the Pharisees are in their own eyes the protectors of Judaism. Like they, they see themselves as Captain Judaism. And yet they go out and they hold counsel with the Herodians, who are the people who are sympathetic to Herod and to Rome. These two groups of people are mortal enemies that hate each other deeply, and yet they hate Jesus more. Because he is calling into question their way of life. To the Pharisees, Jesus is questioning their entire religious system that allows them to stay in control of the people. To the Herodians, Jesus comes and he says, Rome is not the greatest power in the world, and Caesar is certainly not God. 
And I think this is the challenge that faces all of us as we read this story today. Does the way of Jesus challenge the way that we live our lives? Because if we're paying attention at all, it should. Even if it's a question of theology like fasting or Sabbath, we too often just say, this is the way that I was raised, so this is what I do. But were you raised scripturally? Were you raised just in a religious tradition Or were you raised to understand the Word of God and to do what it has called you to do? Does it honor Jesus in the way that He placed people in need over the ceremonies and traditions that were man-made? And I think this question is bigger than just theological questions. It is in every aspect of our lives. As we look at the way that Jesus lived His life, We should be challenged to be more like him. After all, what does the word Christian mean? It started out as a derogatory term for people who hated Christians saying, look at those little Jesuses. And then they said, I like that. A little Christian, all right, a little Jesus. And isn't that exactly what we're here trying to do, to be more like Jesus? Isn't that exactly why those who were impacted by Dick Grenewig were so impacted? Because you see a man who spent his entire life trying to be more like Jesus. And if that's not what we're doing here, then what are we doing here? Amen? Let's pray.